Nicholas Christakis is a social scientist and physician who conducts research in the areas of biosocial science, network science, and behavioral genetics. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University and is the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. Dr. Christakis has authored numerous books, including Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, published in 2019, and Apollo's Era, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, published in 2020. In 2009, Christakis was named by Time Magazine to their annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Professor Nicholas Christakis, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Mia, thank you so much for having me. So we've been enjoying your book, Blueprint. I believe you're going to read a few pages, just give us an idea of what are the evolutionary origins of a good society. So I'll just read something from the last chapter. When we look around the world, we see endless and timeless fear, ignorance, hatred, and violence. From our position, we could also boundlessly catalog the minute details of human groups, highlighting and emphasizing the differences among them. But this pessimistic gaze that separates humans from one another by highlighting evil and by emphasizing difference misses an important underlying unity and overlooks our common humanity. The project of evolutionary sociology in which we have been engaged reveals that humans everywhere are pre-wired to make a particular kind of society, one full of love, friendship, cooperation, and learning. What accounts for our species' general success in living together in the face of all of our defects and differences? How can we understand the goodness of the social world despite the badness? In theology, this is known as a question of theodicy. How is God to be justified in the face of all the evil in the world? I believe, analogously, that we can focus on what I call sociodicy. This is the vindication of our confidence in the virtue of society, despite its numerous failures, so obvious to anyone. This is not just idle optimism. Rather, it's a recognition of the fundamental good that lies within us. It's tempting to look at human history as full of abject misery and dysfunction. One can pick any century or millennium and find it replete with horrors. It is true that there was a dramatic inflection for the better that occurred in the 18th century with the arrival of the Enlightenment and its philosophical values and scientific discoveries. Life became longer, richer, freer, and more peaceful. But people do not have to rely solely on such recent historical developments to make the world better. More ancient and more powerful forces are at work propelling a good society. Humans have always been both competitive and cooperative. Humans have always had both competitive and cooperative impulses, both violent and beneficent tendencies. Like the two strands of the double helix of our DNA, these conflicting impulses are intertwined. We are primed for conflict and hatred, but also for love, friendship, and cooperation. If anything, modern societies are just a patina of civilization on top of this evolutionary blueprint. There's another reason to step off the plateau and look at mountains rather than hills. A key danger of viewing historical forces 
as more salient than evolutionary ones in explaining human society is that our species story then becomes more fragile. Giving historical forces primacy may even tempt us to give up and feel that a good social order is unnatural. But the good things we see around us are part of what makes us human in the first place. We should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instincts. Fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. The arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. Beautifully put. And I would say that the arc of your career is bending towards goodness and will go through uh, your global health initiatives. How do you feel your bilingual, bicultural upbringing gave you a, a lens on how societies and systems work and prepared you for the work you do now? Well, I've always been interested when it comes to learning in, in not only depth, but also breadth. I think that there's this wonderful set of ideas relating to how new discoveries are made or how creativity emerges in the human mind. And those ideas about the origins of creativity and discovery have to do with the intersection of ideas, how different fields or different experiences or different people or, or different facts or different ideas bumping into each other and interacting can create new knowledge and new insights about the world. And of course, this is a well understood in, the, in, in terms of understanding the origins of great civilizations, often at the intersection of trade routes where different people and different ideas and different products are bumping into each other, which then can create great wealth or further innovations. And also in the sciences where an interdisciplinary perspective or one scientist bumps into another or bumps into another field, a very dissimilar one perhaps, and is jostled and has some kind of new creative insights or new ideas. So insofar, and, and that's always excited and interested me. And I suspect that growing up between and within two different societies, you know, may have shaped my outlook a little bit in that regard, you know, may have shaped me uh, to be a bit more open and may also have shaped me in opposition to what the anthropologists call ethnocentrism, you know, which is the idea that, that you judge other societies by reference to your own. So you think, you know, what your own society does is unexamined and is seen as natural and good. And what other societies do, that's sort of alien and weird and in contrast to yours. And so growing up, you know, between Greece and the United States, although they're both Western societies, I think may have shaped the way my mind works. And one more thing I'll say is that there's some interesting literature on how bilingualism may, from an early age, may modify the human brain. And this has been actually contested recently, but I'm certainly in the camp that believes that being raised bilingually is beneficial to one's intellectual capacity. I think so. I mean, even just knowing that there's more than one word or more than one perspective. I mean, I've lived in different countries yeah. and it just also makes you question the system that you're in. Why does it work this way? You're like an outsider. Why does it have to be? Maybe yes. it could be this way. I think that this interdisciplinary connection is what you do at the Human Nature Lab. Tell us how you bring together scholars from diverse disciplines, sociology, economics, computer science, and so many others, and have projects around the world. Well, let me be a bit more roundabout if, with your indulgence and a bit more autobiographical. So when I went to college uh, in 1979, I graduated from high school and I went to Yale. 
and I wanted to study linguistics, maybe influenced in part by my bilingualism. Uh, but I was also interested in semiotics. I was interested in symbols and in symbolism and, and in meaning, actually. But I was afraid to study linguistics I, because I also wanted to go to medical school. I had grown up with a seriously ill parent. My mother died ultimately when I was 25. And so I was afraid to do linguistics. And it, because I was risk averse, I decided instead to study biology. So I got my undergraduate degree, my first degree in biology. But then I went to medical school. I went to Harvard Medical School. And I initially dallied with the idea of becoming a surgeon, a reconstructive surgeon. But I ultimately decided not to do that for a host of other reasons. And my mother got very sick and ultimately died when, between my second and third years of medical school. And in order to make it easier for me to help care for her, I decided to get a Master of Public Health degree to interrupt my medical training and get this extra year of training at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is a miraculous place and very cosmopolitan, very intellectual, very interesting place. And, and as part of that training, I was required to learn, sort of return to the social sciences. I was required to take epidemiology and biostatistics and health policy and uh, global health. And, and all of these things therefore started to percolate in me and started and sort of rekindled my interest in the social sciences. And in the meantime, I had been working in a neuroscience lab, in a cellular neuroanatomy lab headed by a man by the name of Tom Maurice, who made some key discoveries about how synaptic vesicles work. I was working at the marine biology lab in his lab for a few years. But nevertheless, I kind of had this interest in, in the social sciences rekindled, and I decided I needed to, to get a PhD in some social science. And then again, for serendipitous reasons, I met this extraordinary woman who recently died in her 90s, a woman by the name of Renee Fox, who was a, a leading, if not the leading sociologist of medicine. And so I decided when I finished my training at Harvard to go to the University of Pennsylvania, first to do my residency in internal medicine, and then to get a PhD with her in sociology, which was an idiosyncratic choice. And then during my time in getting my PhD in sociology, I was exposed to social networks in the field of sociology, because that's a, a key aspect of, of sociology is the study of networks, which was lucky for me. And that changed my life. And then I finally finished my education in 1995 at the age of 33 and became an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, another miraculous university. And from the beginning, I wanted to set up an interdisciplinary lab. Given all of this stuff that I just described, the medicine, the public health, the linguistics, the sociology, the global health, the statistics, I wanted to set up a lab that modeled on the way the natural sciences run their labs, which is a little different than the way social sciences historically have run their labs, focused on a broad array of <clears throat> topics and ideas at the intersection of the natural and, and social sciences. And so that's what I did. And as a result, I'm blessed to have over the last 25 years or so worked with young scholars in almost any discipline you can name, computational genomics, physics, applied mathematics, sociology, economics, political science, anthropology, public health, medicine, biomedical engineering, I mean, robotics, computer science. In a way, I try to create in my lab kind of, we have an open door policy and I like to describe it as sort of the island of lost toys. So, you know, young people who feel like they don't fit anywhere else in the university somehow find me. And after I make them jump through a few hoops, they're welcome to join the lab. And then I try as much as possible to create in the lab a very open, and supportive and sort of 
joy of discovery place, you know, a place where people are just excited about what they're doing and about and, and try to foster an environment where people do their best work. And that doesn't always succeed, to be clear, but at least that's the environment we try to create in the lab. And as I've gotten older, you know, my job increasingly has become to raise money for the lab and which, you know, protects the younger people in the lab and to set the direction, you know, to try to anticipate where the scientific frontier is. Anyway, that's a long, very long-winded answer, but it, the way that I've tried to organize my lab, and, I, I'm, and in this regard, I'm very ably assisted by a wonderful, my lab director is a man by the name of Tom Keegan, who's a social psychologist. You know, I try to create a lab that, that has certain intellectual and philosophical and practical features that allow us to do the best science that we can do. Well, it sounds that the members of your lab have a wonderful opportunity just to discover. They're really open and we'll go through the different projects you have, but uh, it sounds like a very exciting place to learn. I mean, I like it, I have to say, and it's minimally hierarchical, although I am the principal investigator. To me, you know, when I open the door to the lab, it feels like I'm entering a kind of sane, inventive, kind island you know, in what is otherwise often a very tumultuous world in academia and research these days. I think my job, one of my jobs is to take young scientists and grab them by the shoulders and move them as rapidly as possible to the scientific frontier and then point and say, look out, stand and look out from here. This is where the new knowledge is. And that requires a lot of hard work and running by the young scientists. They have to learn a lot of skills, a lot of material quickly. But then they can, if I can get them to the scientific frontier, then their efforts are used in a way which lifts us all up. I mean, lifts them up, it lifts me up. I, I, I try to avoid hiring people whose knowledge and skills are a subset of my own, right? In other words, if this is what I know, hiring someone that has a subset of what I know is boring to me and often doesn't take lift the lab up. So I tend to try to hide people if I can that are smarter than me and that can do things I can't do because that extends my reach and it teaches me new things and it creates a more fertile environment for discovery amongst the younger people in the lab. So we have a large number. We have about four or five graduate students at any given time and two to five postdocs at any given time in the lab plus technical staff and the field sites that you mentioned as part of the global health work that we also do. That's great. So you've been talking a lot about interdisciplinary thinking. And speaking of that, I was wondering how we can apply your findings and your thoughts to environmentalism and the climate crisis that affects us every day. So I was interested in hearing specifically in one of your articles how you spoke about we as a society depending on altruism during COVID to keep our community safe. So what do you think is the role of altruism in matters that seem less urgent in our daily lives, such as climate change? Well, I mean, Evelyn, I could answer that question in several ways. First of all, we are actually working in the lab on some issues of climate change, you know, how the particular nature of what's called the collective action problem or how it is, or, or sometimes similar topic is something called the social trap, you know, why each person acting in the furtherance of their own interest, seemingly rationally, can create an outcome that is disastrous for all. For example, the tragedy of the commons is a classic example of this type of a social trap or this type of collective action problem. And climate change is like that. You know, every individual feels that their efforts might be pointless. Everyone is acting in a way that is perhaps ideal from their own interests. 
But as a result, we're polluting the environment and we're degrading it in a way that will harm us all. But one of the ironies of the climate catastrophe, unlike the COVID or other epidemics, is that the time horizon over which that unfolds is sufficiently long that it's some future people that will be harmed the most. And there are actually other interesting subtleties about the climate change and its impact and the challenges we face in confronting it. It's a bit very counterintuitive, actually. Anyway, so my lab has been thinking a little bit about how to model these types of challenges, these sort of tragedies of the commons of this kind. We have, as you suggested, been thinking about the ways in which the recent pandemic we've transitioned through may or may not provide a model for the way the world might or might not work together to confront climate change, which is another global catastrophe unfolding over a longer time frame. We've also been thinking about, and I did write about this in, in my book, Apollo Zero, about the pandemic, the ways in which the climate change is actually connected to pandemics. And, and you probably know this, but these two phenomena are actually interconnected because with climate change, we are increasingly despoiling the environment and reducing the habitat for animals. And those animals are fleeing those habitats and coming into greater contact with us. And we, because of climate change, are migrating and moving across the surface of the planet and coming into greater contact with wild animals. And most new diseases in humans are zoonotic diseases. They start in wild animals and they come to us. And there's evidence done by another laboratory published in Nature about 10 or 15 years ago that shows that these zoonotic diseases are rising with time. And any listener will know that, you know, we've had HIV, which started in, in monkeys. We've had SARS-1, which also st which started in bats. We've had Zika. We've had Ebola. Uh, we've had all of these things that hit the news. Monkeypox is in the news while we're speaking that, you know, leap to humans and, and then affect us. And so these zoonotic diseases are rising. So there's a connection because of climate change. But even this is not new. In fact, there's an interesting literature in, by historians that looks at the role of climate change in the Roman Empire, and how that actually helped to foster plagues back then too. So yes, there are many ways. And then finally, actually, in answer to this question, there are ways in which some of the work we do in the lab on how humans can cooperate. And we've, we've been doing a lot of experiments, understanding the mechanisms of human cooperation and the, the sorts of social environments that foster cooperation maximally. So we've done lots of experiments with large groups of people to see how we can make cooperation better. Some of that work is also, I think, relevant to how we get people to work together to confront climate change. There's one very quirky thing that I learned from my colleague, uh, Bill Nordhaus, who is won the Nobel Prize in economics. He's uh, here at Yale. And so he and I co-taught a class last semester on global catastrophes, and we focus on climate change, the pandemic. And there's this interesting idea that because of that co-teaching, that class with him that I encountered that I'm still wrestling with, which is that there is an argument you could make, believe it or not, that we should not bother to fix climate change. It's connected to the idea of economic inequality. So if you asked us, if you asked you and all of us, probably on this call, we would say, yes, well, of course we're concerned with inequality, economic inequality. And we might say, you know, we don't think that we would think rising inequality is inappropriate. And we would probably think that it's not moral to take money from the poor and give it to the rich that actually, if anything, we should do it the other way around. So if we adopted a kind of Rawlsian perspective theory of justice, for instance, behind the veil of ignorance, you know, we would say we would probably choose a society, which if anything, took 
money from the rich and gave it to the poor rather than vice versa, for example, right? These would all be ideas, concern for inequality, redistribution of wealth and all this stuff, which we would sort of take for granted. Well, now consider this idea. Across human history, subsequent generations are richer than prior generations. Our descendants, our grandchildren, are going to be richer than we are. They'll have more technologies. They'll be able to live better lives. So us foregoing the use of energy in order to make their lives better, the argument goes, is an economic transfer from the poor, this current generation, to the rich, the future generations. And therefore, it's very paradoxical. Like when I encountered this idea, I was like, this can't be. But actually, if you look at the fundamental parts of that argument, there is actually a sense in which constraining consumption today for the benefit of these future generations actually would enhance intergenerational economic inequality. Isn't that crazy? It's, that's a very provocative argument to me. It definitely is provocative uh, if you're calling the future generation richer, if, if in this future generation they survive. <laughs> yes, but I mean, this is, I don't think we're talking about an apocalyptic situation in which, you know, so they will, there will be future generations. And judging from everything that's happened for the last few thousand years, they will be richer and better off than we are one way or the other. Yes, I do want to get onto how we can modify our capitalist system so that we lead fairer, more equitable lives because rich richer is a relative term, right? If you're well, this is the thing. I mean, this is also the thing, like people ask oftentimes when we, it's very difficult to make intergenerational comparisons in, in, in economic wealth, because would you rather be, you know, Augustus Caesar, or would you rather be one of us? Would you rather live 2000 years ago and be an emperor, or would you rather be one of us? Now we have all the comforts of a middle-class life. We have uh, Netflix, we have cell phones, we uh, can fly, we can, in our lifetimes, we can go anywhere in the world we want, we can go all over the world because all of this modern technology exists, none of which were available to even the richest person on the planet, you know, the most powerful person on the planet 2,000 years ago. So the question is, was he poorer or not than us? You know, in some sense, I have refrigeration, I have packaged foods, intercontinental travel. I have a, a computer in my pocket. I have a navigation and metallurgy and, and me modern medicines, right? I have all of the things that will save my life if I get ser seriously ill that were completely unavailable 2,000 years ago. So it's actually quite difficult to make these comparisons across generations, even if you look at that simple um, example. I honestly don't know what I would prefer. I think I would prefer, if you said, well, if you gave me the choice of being Marcus Aurelius, that would be a hard choice because he was amazing. But but I, I think, you know, if you gave me the choice of being a Roman aristocrat or a sort of contemporary American middle-class professor, I think I would pick being alive today, which means that 2,000 years from now, the a future me might make the same decision, which means that modern generations are richer than prior generations. We love the positivity. We love that. We do want to also work on climate change as you do as well, but it gives you a perspective because it can always seem in the moment that everything is a catastrophe or everything's not good. Yes. But see, this is the thing. So Steven Pinker has argued and others that the world is getting better and all the evidence suggests this. But what I was arguing in Blueprint, which I read at the beginning, was that the world is getting better, not just because of recent historical forces, 
the world is good and getting better because of this arc of evolution as well. And that in fact, this should be a pleasing thought to us because it means it's not just about the ups and downs of what modern societies are doing that really matters. As you, how do, I'm just wondering, how do you apply your study of systems to cities? You know, as you know, we're living in the center of the city and we hear so much about innovation and smart cities, but really people, many people don't know what their future is going to look like. Uh, they face food insecurity, water shortages, heat waves, storms, it's, it's everywhere. There's real uncertainty about how we can redesign our systems, housing, climate, transport, education. What are some projects or what is your perspective on this, the Human Nature Lab? I don't know if I have that much that's intelligent to say specifically about urbanizations and cities in the 21st century, but I have one idea I'll share with you, which may intrigue you, and it certainly gives me something to think about. And then, about, and before I share that idea, I'll just set the predicate, which is that over the last 10,000 years, the history of human beings has been one of progressive urbanization. People love to live in cities. Even in the last 50 years, we've gone dramatic rises in urbanization around the world. So. And people like to live in cities because they are exciting places and they are places of employment. They can have better lives and people vote with their feet and move to cities all over the world. And so whether you look over the last uh, 20 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years, the history of humankind has been one of progressive urbanization. So cities are amazing. Now, why are they amazing? Well, there's one aspect of that uh, relates to some of the work my lab does on human social interactions, which is the main focus of what my work in my lab does. We look at the mathematical, biological, psychological, and social underpinnings and consequences of human social interaction. And that is the following idea, which by the way is contentious as well, but let me just put the idea on the table. Imagine we create a graph and on the x-axis, we put the size of a city. Maybe it's on a log plot. So cities of size 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, 1 million, 10 million, and so on. And on the x-axis, we put, let's make it a log plot, the count of, of something that we're counting. So let's consider some ideas. As the city size gets bigger, what's the growth in demand for coffins? You know, when people die, you put them in a coffin. Well, a, a city of 100,000 people probably needs 10 times as many coffins as a city of 10,000 people, assuming that you know, younger people aren't migrating to bigger cities and therefore less likely to die. But, you know, if the population structure is similar, as cities grow linearly, the demand for coffins grows linearly. There's just a diagonal on this little graph that we have drawn. So that's the demand for, that's the supply of coffins. That's the coffin supply or the number of coffins, how it grows as the size of a city grows. Now let's consider something else like gas stations. If you multiply the size of a city by 10, do you need 10 times as many gas stations? No, the growth in gas stations is sublinear, right? A city that's 10 times the size doesn't need 10 times as many gas stations. So what you'll have if you plotted it is if you plotted number of gas stations on the y-axis by city size on the x-axis, you'll have a curve that bends down below the diagonal, okay? It'll be concave downward with declining marginal increase in the number of gas stations. Now let's look at patents the number of patents as a measure of the inventiveness of a city. Well, it turns out the number of patents, some evidence suggests, rises superlinearly with the size of a city. So a city that's 10 times the size might need 10 times as many coffins, might not, would not need 10 times as many gas stations, but might produce more than 10 times as many ideas. 
And one of the reasons for this is that as the size of the population grows, the combinatorial complexity, the network complexity rises super linearly. So a city of that's 10 times the size has a hundred times as many social possible social connections. And it's these social connections between people, as we started about at the beginning, that lead to the creation of new ideas, people mixing and bumping into each other with different occupations and different business ideas and different ways of life. And so one of the ideas about cities is that they are these creative places. And as they get bigger and bigger, they get more and more creative. So I don't know, that's just one thought that connects networks to cities in the 21st century. I don't know if that's I just, it's just one idea in response to your very broad question. It does. I love, I've always lived in cities and we just want to make sure that they stick around and aren't flooded and consumed by heat waves. Well, that's definitely going to happen. I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, most of, I forgot, I, I've seen these numbers. I don't remember them. Some enormous fraction of the world population lives within a mile of the ocean or something and, and rising sea levels are going to inundate all of our major cities. I don't understand why that's not affecting prices already in places like Hong Kong and, uh, and New York. I mean, you know, if in the next 50 years, the sea level rises in New York by, well, it's not going to rise by a foot in the next 50 years, but there's some estimate. I don't remember the precise numbers, but like over the next hundred years, there's going to be a dramatic rise in sea level and all of the basements in much of New York, if not first floors will be flooded. That really should be affecting real estate investment in New York City, as far as I understand, but it doesn't seem to have affected it yet. Certainly oceanfront property in North Carolina and Florida, I think is beginning to get hit because people are seeing more and more, you know, houses roll into the sea as sea level uh, rises. Right. And speaking of climate change and sea level rise again, this very real possibility of sea level rising that's happening soon. There's no doubt. The sea level is rising. There's some dispute, which you know, about why I'm very much partial to the anthropogenic climate change explanation, to be very clear. And there's some question about how it'll continue to rise, but I don't think anyone thinks it's going to stop rising. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry, Eileen. No, of course. So my question with the fact that it's happening now, how do we grapple with this understanding that there is a fundamental good within us, as your research argues, and also feel despair when looking at the direction our world is going in terms of climate change, for example, through sea level rise? Well, I'm just not going to join you in your despair. I'm terribly sorry. I mean, I'm optimistic about human beings and uh, we have confronted serious challenges before. And I do think we will work our way through this. I do think there are there's going to be a lot of misery and suffering with climate change. There'll be huge population displacements. Countries like Bangladesh will be underwater. Island nations will be disappear. Major cities will be inundated over the next hundred years. It'll happen, you know, slowly but surely. And I think, and there will be some conflicts about this too. So all of that's true. I'm not putting my head in the sand and saying, you're wrong, that it's not going to happen. But what I'm saying is, is I don't think it's going to doom us or our species. I, I believe we will be able to cope with it. Now, ideally, we would cope with it already by mitigating it. And I don't think we can, I think we're beyond the point of no return. I don't think we can stop climate change any longer, but I think we can greatly reduce its impact and the rate of worsening. One of the things we can do at any time, of course, is to adopt nuclear power. And, and I do believe advances in solar energy, te the technological advances will accelerate. There's no doubt about that. We'll produce more and more electricity in that way, reduce our dependence on fossil fuel. But I don't think the adoption of that will be fast enough to really deflect the course of climate change. I think for that, we would need wide adoption of nuclear power, which comes with its own problems. 
So my point is that we have and will soon have even more technologies to address the problem. I think we will implement them late. I think we may do it in a way that was needlessly late, that you know, which will be foolish of us. But I do think we will make changes and that our economies will adjust and I think people will survive. Am I being too optimistic for you? I don't, I know we love to hear the optimism because also you're working in your lab with people who are, who are gaming this out across Yale, I'm sure. You've been in the rooms and you understand the, the projects that are underway. We love the optimism. My name is Evelyn Mall, and I'm a student studying environment and sustainability. I found the conversation with Professor Christakis very thought-provoking. He covered a broad range of topics such as climate change, AI, free speech, and abortion. Dr. Christakis has argued that there is a fundamental goodness within us as a species, and that we are genetically predisposed to building healthy, functioning societies. Optimism and positivity like this is a really great outlook, especially in today's day and age, where we have so much access to everything going on all the time, and thus can see a lot of the bad that we would not otherwise be exposed to without networks such as social media. Professor Christakis's research and the conversations we had bring up many questions, particularly about the tension between considering humanity as a whole and thinking about the society we live in today. For example, Professor Christakis brought up how studies show that the world is getting better, especially, as he argues, because of the arc of evolution. This is a very positive approach, but how do we read this in the context of the world we live in? Where mass shootings happen every day in the US, leaders around the world do not act on climate change. Racism is institutionalized in the very structures of many of our societies, and so much more. How do we grapple with this tension? When we asked Professor Christakis about this, he focused on the future and how things are continuing to get better, which is, again, a refreshing perspective. But what does that mean for the people that suffer today? For example, you just heard our brief conversation about sea level rise. As Professor Christakis said, nations will disappear, cities will be underwater. So what does optimism mean for them? We are optimistic about the future of humanity as a whole, but what does that mean for the people suffering right now? This conversation inspired me to look at the progression of humanity. Views are changing and, and people are becoming more accepting of so many different aspects of life. Despite its many flaws, social media brings connection. But once again, how do we look at these positive aspects while still not losing our drive to be better and convince our peers and our leaders to be better? As a young person very involved in the fight against climate change and social injustice, I'm often told that I'm being too critical of any small steps taken towards change and that I should be happy that any progress is being made at all. But I struggle with this. Of course, I'm happy that change is being made, but does that mean I have to be satisfied with it and not see the potential to do better? I personally think that we should not lose faith in the power that we have as individuals and the power we have as citizens to demand better. Deploying the belief that things will sort themselves out 
could be seen as putting the responsibility on someone else. Someone will have to take action to sort things out. Yet, positivity and optimism absolutely have a role in all types of activism and the way we live our lives. We would not be fighting if we did not believe we could do better. When we demand better, we imagine better, and we create better. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Just changing the topic to something that's also on our minds a lot these days, you write about agency versus structure. So what are your views on Roe versus Wade? Because you've also written about suicide being a social act. Could you elaborate on that? I don't know if that relates to abortion rights. I don't think there's any Solomonic solution to the challenges of abortion. You know, I think it should be safe, legal, and rare. You know, I think that the sort of European model that allows women wide latitude in the first trimester to decide whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term, but then imposes rather substantial constraints beginning in the second trimester is likely to be where the United States will land. It's sort of the compromise that most people who struggle with this come to, you know, that it, that there's something sad and with a whiff of immorality of aborting a fetus. But on the other hand, it's not for me to decide uh, whether uh, some other person is obliged to take a pregnancy to term. And, you know, I think extremism in either extent, like either on the far left or on the far right, can lead to some very nonsensical positions. For example, if you find yourself obliged to believe that life begins at conception and therefore aborting a fetus even at one month is murder, well then, what do you do about artificial insemination or fertility treatments? You know, are, are, are all the embryos that are frozen right now, are, if those are discarded, is that murder? And then how will we have fertility treatments in our in society? Or how do you cope with cases of rape or incest? There's a governor, I think, in Nebraska recently who said that he would not allow abortion. He, incidentally, sort of interesting, would not allow abortion even in the case of rape or incest, which is really absurd, candidly, that someone would not only be raped, but then have to be obliged to carry the pregnancy to term because someone else said, some other party uh, said so. So that extreme doesn't make much sense. And then the other extreme, I think, of, of saying, well, uh, the state has no interest in what happens to children in utero, fetuses in utero, also is sort of not quite right either. Because for example, we regularly look askance at people who abuse drugs while they're pregnant. We think they are committing a, an immoral act, right? To if you use cocaine, for example, or serious alcohol while you're pregnant, we would think that was uh, not appropriate, that you would act in this fashion injurious to the fetus. So, so that's not quite right either. So I don't have a Solomonic answer to that question. Actually, I've, I don't think I've ever been asked on a podcast before about my opinions about abortion. I'm just a regular old citizen when it comes into this regard. Framing it on the structure versus agency, you were alluding to a, a fundamental and deep idea in sociology which sees agency as the ability of an individual to determine their own destiny. And it's about the choices that individuals make and how those choices are connected to what happens to them. On the other hand, structure is the entire environment that surrounds individuals. That includes social phenomena, government policies, racism, economic inequality, pollution in the environment, a warfare, all of those things, the laws and regulations, all of those things are structural factors which constrain individuals. And those two determine what happens to our lives. So there's this tension between structure and agency. And historically, politically, the left has been concerned with structure, 
you know, all of these unfair things that are affecting individuals' life chances. And the right has been concerned with agency. What are individuals choosing to do that affects their life chances? Now, of course, both are important. And as the way you framed the abortion debate, you know, is a further illustration of this tension between structure and agency. And on this note, you're a defender of uh, freedom of expression, which has always been under threat. But with our new technologies and social networks, freedom of speech is threatened in new ways. How do you navigate that? I'm pretty close to being a free speech absolutist. I mean, there's an enormous philosophical literature on this and jurisprudential literature on this. And I think it people who wade into this area would do well to not reinvent the wheel and to look at all the difficult examples that, that others have looked at. So for example, there's a well understood difference between free expression and harassment. So famously, the Nazis can march through Skokie, Illinois, the Supreme Court rules, but they cannot stop in front of your house, right? The first is a public expression in the commons, in the public space. The latter is a personal threat to you. And that's not free speech. That's a threat, okay? We don't want to protect people. You know, people who burn a cross on public land is different than people who burn a cross on the front lawn of their interracial neighbors. That's not allowed. That's a threat. That's completely different. So I bring up this one example of, of the boundaries of free expression. So for example, another boundary is an imminent threat. You know, it's one thing to say, I think we should march on the United States Capitol. It's another for me on the grounds of the United States Capitol to organize people that is not protected uh, speech, whereas the former is protected. And there are tests about how imminent does, do we mean by imminent? Another well understood is exceptions have to do with satire. If you say that, I don't know, such and such, you know, Democrats should be put to death, you know, don't really mean that. You're using extreme language, put to death, you know, means should be ignored or should lose the election or something. So the second point is that I think that societies are at their best and are most inventive when they allow the widest possible expression. In the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, we had examples initially in China where the Chinese Communist Party tried to support individual hospital workers who were sounding the alarm about the COVID-19 pandemic because it didn't suit their interests. And actually very soon thereafter, we found this in the United States where individual hospital systems were firing doctors or nurses that were sounding the alarm about what was happening. That does not serve anyone's interest. You know, shooting the messenger, it does not change the reality of the condition. We want, if anything, to create an environment which allows as many people to speak in the public sphere and as much information to be shared as possible. And I do believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. I do believe that in the marketplace of ideas, in the long run, the good ideas will win. Now, in the short run, you know, you can have Pol Pot, right? I mean, you can have the use of ideas or the, the exploitation of ideas coupled with action. Let's not forget, there's a difference between Pol Pot saying we should return to an agrarian economy and then Pol Pot killing people, right? One is the expression of an idea. The other is acting. And I think that is an important distinction too, which is also often lost. People say, well, speech is an act. No, speech is a different kind of act than me smacking you. And in fact, we would rather have me speak than me smacking you. Therefore, we should encourage me to speak and discourage me and prohibit me 
from smacking anyone. So anyway, I think in general, as I look at the speech environment in our country right now, I'm concerned with political polarization. I'm concerned with desires, both on the left and on the right, to censor others. These right-wing legislatures that are passing laws that regulate what can be taught in classrooms, I think that's appalling. And I think uh, a lot of left-wing groups that are trying to remove books from libraries or regulate what professors must say or can say in, in schools is also appalling. And there are many examples on the far right and on the far left of this. People would like to silence others, right? It's very tempting to want to silence others. <clears throat> but they should realize that what goes around comes around. You know, who would you willingly agree should regulate what you can read or hear? Is there anyone to whom you would grant the authority to decide what you can read or hear? And there's nobody I can think of other than myself that I would grant the authority to regulate what I can hear and read. Therefore, we must allow that right to all of our fellow citizens. We can't say, I get to hear and read what I want, but I'm going to stop you from hearing and reading what you want. That's the, the way to totalitarianism and has been well understood and decried by philosophers and science fiction writers for centuries. Right. And these are all very interesting topics. You've covered so much and I'm so interested in everything you're saying, but I wanted to jump back a second to environmentalism and what you were saying about nuclear power and technology. So you were talking about nuclear power as a solution, clean energy as a solution. And I was wondering what you think and what your arguments and what your research would say about choices society makes as a whole to move towards a carbon neutral, a carbon free economy. For example, broader systematic changes that are not necessarily a shift um, to clean energy, such as questioning donation money to politicians that are controlled by oil lobbyists, thinking about consumerism on a broader scale, thinking about the economy and the capitalist society we live in, and things on a broader scale. So there, I'm not an expert in environmental policy, so I hesitate to, and I understand a little bit about carbon pricing and the carbon economy, but not a lot. So I, I don't want to opine too much on that. I think, of course, anyone that wants to freely do those things should be allowed to. So for example, I uh, visited a company, I'm blocking on the name of the company right now. It's a very inventive company in California where he, this a man was a, a mycologist, I think was his training in fungal biology. And he and some colleagues invented processes of using mushrooms, basically, to make a kind of faux leather, this deep matting, which is then compressed. And it looks and feels and works like leather and can replace the slaughter of countless animals. And it's a little bit like lab-grown meat, for instance. So I think that if people are willing and eager to pay a different price or switch from real leather to fake leather and feel good about themselves because they're doing that or making a statement or like the practicalities, or you can stain this fake leather much better. I forgot, it's a magnificent company. I'm blocking the name right now. And I think that's great. And I think that the things that the electric car manufacturers are doing, where you know some citizens will say, I like electric cars. I like, I like them because they accelerate better. They have better handling because the battery, the weight is below. I also feel good about myself because I'm switching to a different kind of source of power. I'm willing to pay more money and eventually the same amount of money and switch to electric cars. And I'm gonna vote for politicians that set up charging stations all over the place. These are all wonderful things. I have no objections to any of that. So if the public policy is set through the democratic process, 
then like any other public policy, I would support it. So I'm not sure I've answered your question. I think what you're alluding to is that the majority of the public may not yet be ready to do things that is best for the majority. And that is the fundamental democratic dilemma, isn't it? Because the best solution we have is democracy. The alternative is to give dictatorial powers to some smaller group. And you and I might really like that when it comes to energy policy, but we might not like it at all when it comes to you know, abortion rights uh, or something else. So we have to be very wary of, in my judgment, of somehow trying to ramrod you know, public policy without engaging in, a, you know, unfortunately, a painful and slow process of democratic activism. One of the things I like is that you as a college student are really engaged with climate change. And I actually think that's exactly what you should be engaged in. And I often am amazed that so many of your peers seem to be so much more worried about more selfish and more self-referential challenges in our society. You know, when I was in college, we were concerned about apartheid and we were concerned about poverty and we we were concerned about nuclear war. When I was in medical school, there was a, you may not even relate to this, but people were really worried that the Americans and the Soviets were gonna go to war and the world would be destroyed. The International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War was a real group. Uh, Bernard Laun, who's one of the founders, was at Harvard Medical School when I was there. And, and, and they were really saying, my God, you know, we're gonna kill ourselves with nuclear war. Those were things we were all concerned. So I think climate change is exactly the kind of thing that your generation should be taking up and being politically active about. Because you, unlike me, are also likely to bear many more of the consequences of that, you know, in expectation in terms of our longevity. Right. And you've been talking a lot about democracy and the choices we make as individuals and the faith we should have in democracy. But I think it's fair to say that the state of the world and the state of at least the U.S. democracy can be questioned at times in terms of how much faith we can have in the system, how much faith we can have in the uh, politicians that represent us, how they're like, where they're I don't going. like the... I don't like the politicians, many of them at all, but there isn't yet evidence of corruption in our elections. And I think we need to be really careful in, in that distinction. So not right. like the outcome of the process is different than feeling the process was corrupted. And I'm very worried that in the United States, we may even soon face that latter threat. And that I think is, you know, is, is extraordinarily dangerous. So the fact that we have the rules that we have, and there are some anti-democratic elements in our system. For example, the Electoral College is an anti-democratic force. The, the Supreme Court acts as a kind of ballast, right? It's a very conservative organization which reaches, you know, for 30 years into the future. We can't change it. And the founders tried to put all of these checks and balances and distribute powers widely. We saw, by the way, in some sense, the wisdom of the founders, because I think that the previous president, uh, uh, Donald Trump, and his associates, we can now can see from the records emerging from the from the hearings in the House, would have corrupted the election if they could have. But amazingly, it was the fact that they would, they would have had to have a huge conspiracy of many states and many people that the distribution of certain powers to the states actually protected our democracy when it needed protection. So I am very worried about that. But the fact that m there are many politicians who I think are fools or who are acting in ways that are harming our society, I have to accept that in a, Democrat, in a democracy. So I, I don't want you to conflate, we don't like these politicians with, they were forced on us by a corrupt process. Those are two different problems. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. absolutely. No, I was thinking more along the lines of how we get these people into power in terms of donation. There's a lot of muddiness with oil donation monies. And I know there are certain laws around donations, what can be donated to a person yeah, so versus the campaign. And so sometimes maybe in states that have a steel industry or coal industry, yes. the politicians that are elected in those states get a lot of money from those yes. um, companies and then vote against yes. green the Green New yes. Deal or generally environmental policy. So I'm wondering what you think. So I wouldn't, in the you can frame the ability of, this is a complicated topic, but you can frame the ability of companies to make donations as an issue of free expression. In other words, people are enacting and shareholders and, you know, there, you can, there's, I mean, corporations are not people and then somehow they represent people and should they or shouldn't they be able to do it and so on. For example, I'm really opposed to, to the prison industry. I, I'm appalled by the fact that people can make money through the imprisonment of their fellow citizens. And I think incarceration is the function of the state. And the fact that there might be a prison industry that could give money to politicians to make our laws more strict and our judges and our laws less lenient, for example, not because we think it's in the furtherance of justice, but because it's in the furtherance of profits for the prison industry, I find that appalling, right? So, but the way I would handle this is I would put into place rules and regulations that require transparency, uniformity, and so on. Every politician has to reveal where their money comes from, every corporation, every entity has. That's, I would throw bright light on it. I wouldn't try to regulate where money can be spent or who can spend money and I would have them be content neutral. So for example, if you and I are upset about the influence of, you know, if we think that oil industry money is being given to politicians in a way that subverts the common good, well, any rules we put in place to regulate that, we better be willing to tolerate that if they were applied to industries that we favor. So the kinds of things that I'm interested in, in free speech as well, is, is I want the lack of corruption and I want transparency in our civic life. And then I let ideas and, and citizens sort it out after that. And we want fair rules, fair umpires, a non-corrupt judiciary, a free press. We want the Freedom of Information Act. We want transparency. And then we can fight it out <laughs> with those fair rules. And, you know, I won't always win. You know, my candidate won't always win. My beliefs about the state of the world won't always win. Then I have to do more activism or encourage young people to do more activism. Yes, I think more transparency. And I would also say that there should be some limits to donations and, you know, see free advertisements for the political parties, a certain amount of free airtime, and then you don't have to think about the money going into it. Yeah, but we could do that. And I wouldn't be opposed to that. But you have to consider the idea that you know, you might find it very frustrating if you could no longer give your money to Amnesty International or Greenpeace or the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. You know, how are we going to draw the line at what you can do as a free citizen with the resources that you command? So, so it's hard. I, I do actually think we should have public funding of campaigns. I don't disagree with you. But then what will we tell rich people that they can't run for elections and spend their own money? You know, we'll say you are not allowed. Not only might that not be correct from a moral point of view in the sense that why should they be prohibited from spending their money? But there's even an argument, I'm not, I'm not saying I buy this argument, but it, there's an argument that actually we want rich people to run for elections because they're precisely the ones that would be less likely to be you know, swayed by corruption. You know, like if you're rich enough, what do you care? Uh, you're not going to be bought for 50 grand or, or 100 grand or whatever. So long as you win your election fairly, you know, people vote, 
and the votes are counted correctly, you know, maybe we want them. So I struggle with that. If you're really asking me lots of political questions, which I have no particular expertise in. I mean, I'm just a citizen like you guys. It's just because we think a lot about the environment and, and its implications. Yeah. I know your recent project has been around COVID. What else is your team exploring at the Human Nature Lab? Here's a set of ideas that we're engaged in right now. My lab is doing a bunch of things. We're doing a lot of stuff in global health where we invent and primarily test mathematical algorithms for, for mapping networks in developing world settings, like in villages. But these same tools can be used in schools or in firms, for instance. We have some software that we've released that allows us to do this called Trellis. T-R-E-L-I-S, trellis.yale.edu. There's a little video there. You can learn more about it. But anyway, you can map these networks and you can identify structurally influential individuals, people within a village that uh, if you get them to change their mind, the whole village will change their mind. And this can be, we usually test public health interventions like breastfeeding and vaccination and, and infant anemia and so on. But by the way, the same kinds of things can be done for climate change and recycling and the carbon attitudes towards you know carbon capture and so on. So, and then we test these, we do large randomized controlled trials, and we've had support from the Gates Foundation and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Nomis Foundation in Switzerland and the Templeton Foundation and the National Institute of Aging. So we get a lot of support from a lot of funders to do this kind of work where we test, if you go into a village, which 10 people should you pick such that if you persuade them to change their behavior, everyone in the village will copy them? Can we, in fact, induce artificial tipping points in human populations and change population behavior at scale. So that's one thing we do, we do global health stuff. We also do a lot of work on the microbiome. We're very interested in how the bacteria that live in us and on us might spread through social networks in ways that are very important. So one of our crazy sets of ideas, it's increasingly becoming clear, other labs are showing that the microbes within you may affect your mental health. For example, some of the metabolites of some of the bacteria in your gut may uh, go through your blood and even cross the blood-brain barrier and might affect your mood. So all these old ideas about you feel it with your gut and stuff might actually be true in some sense. But we think that actually, and we've done some prior work in my lab that looks at the contagion of human emotions, uh, of happiness, of depression, and so on, based on social interactions and psychological processes that again have to do with the evolutionary origins of emotions and so on. But increasingly, I'm beginning to wonder whether there might literally be a biological contagion of human emotions, for instance. So that's some work we're doing in the lab. We have an initiative in, in artificial intelligence. And I had an article in The Atlantic a couple of years ago that you could link to or that people might find interesting. And we've published a stream of papers on this in what we call hybrid systems of humans and machines. And this is the idea that increasingly we're going to see, certainly online, we're going to see bots and humans interacting on a level playing field. But we're also going to see it in the real world, for example, we're going to have highways that have driverless cars driven by AI and, and human-driven cars that are going to coexist in the same highway. And the question is, how do these hybrid systems work? And we're doing a lot of research on this. Here, I've been working primarily with uh, Hirokazu Shirado, who's now at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, Maggie Traeger, who's now at Notre Dame, and I've also done some collaborative work with Brian Scazzolatti, who goes by SCAS, who's a roboticist at Harvard. And uh, quite a few others in the lab, we've been working on this topic. And uh, here's the idea. What I'm interested in is not how to design AI to optimize the human-AI interaction. I'm interested in a different kind of problem. So imagine that you 
are the inventor of a digital assistant like an Alexa. You would design that product so that it is makes the buyer, the purchaser, really happy. For example, you would not design the product to be very burdensome to use. When you want to find out the weather, you don't say, excuse me, Alexa, I'm terribly sorry to interrupt you. And if you don't mind, would you please tell me the weather? It's ridiculous. You would just say, Alexa, weather, and the machine obediently responds. But when you bring that device into your house, your children, when they speak to the device, learn to be rude. And then when they go to the playground, they are rude to other children. So the introduction of this type of autonomous, of artificial intelligence into our social interactions changes how the humans treat each other. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in human interactions in the face of the coexistence of forms in the social world. So for example, in the autonomous vehicle example, the purchaser of a vehicle, if, if you're buying the car and the guy says, look, you know, I can give you the car as a very smooth ride. You're like, yes, that's exactly what I want. If I'm in the car, I want a very smooth ride. But now this car that's driving very smoothly, the human driven car behind it is lulled into a false sense of security, gets inattentive. You know, it's like, well, this car is just moving at a constant velocity. I don't really have to pay much attention and gets inattentive. And then the autonomous vehicle exits. And now the, the human driver in the other car lulled into this false sense of security and inattentiveness is more likely to be in collisions. So the human collisions may increase because of the programming we have given to the car that's optimized for the inhabitant. So these kinds of problems in what, what I call hybrid systems of humans and machines are a very key focus of my lab right now. Maggie Traeger, who's now at Notre Dame, who I mentioned, she did a wonderful project in which we made these groups of three humans and a humanoid robot who were working together to solve a problem. And we manipulated the humanity of the robot. For example, sometimes we had the robot tell like stupid dad jokes, you know, like corny jokes, or we had the robot, you know, break the ice by saying, you know, robots can make mistakes too, you know, this kind of stuff. And what we found was that the human interactions could be changed by the simple programming of the robot. So we've been doing a lot of stuff like that. And, and just to be clear, my lab is not a computer science lab. We are not attempting to invent AlphaGo. You know, we're not in attempting to invent super smart AI to replace human cognition. We are inventing dumb AI to supplement human interaction. Are there simple forms of artificial intelligence, simple programming of bots, such that when they are added to groups of humans, because those humans are smart or otherwise positively inclined, helps the humans to help themselves? Can we get groups of people to work better together, for instance, to confront climate change or to reduce racism online? or to foster innovation within firms? Can we have simple forms of AI that are added into our midst that make us work better together? And the work we're doing in that part of my lab shows that abundantly that's the case. And we published a stream of papers uh, showing that we can do that. Fascinating work. And in the field of medicine, I know that there are some kind of AI nurses, or I don't know about AI educators. What are your yes. feelings about that? Well, one of my closest friends, uh, is a radiologist, computer scientist, a man by the name of Kurt Langlotz at Stanford. He's been working in this area for a very long time of digital support. And I think that the best decisions have been shown to be made in a range of high risky enterprises from piloting aircraft to diagnostic radiology, when you have a mix of, of you know, human and AI uh, working together. So you get decision support that, you know, helps humans 
to make better decisions. So generally, I'm quite in favor of these advances. So in closing, as you think about the future education, the challenges we face, what were some important life lessons to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'm trying to think of the, the pithiest and the tersest things that I can say, and I'm suddenly being drawn to the ancient Greek, which is an expression, pathe mathos, which is through suffering comes learning or suffering teaches, pathe mathos. And I think there's no way to live a life without risk or pain, unfortunately. And I'm not saying we should seek out risk and pain, but I think that trying to live a life that avoids those completely will thin out your life and will impoverish your character and your mind. And so therefore, if you wanted some pithy advice, I would just advise against that kind of fiction that you can be protected from any kind of dangers or problems or sadness in the world. And I say this, having spent an hour and some odd time with you now talking about optimism and hope, all of which I also believe, but I think in order to have that kind of open optimism, you have to accept and confront the, the pain and the difficulties in life as well. And for there, we find the beauty. So thank you, Nicholas Christakis, for sharing insights into how systems and society affects our individual lives, your contributions to global health and social science, so that we can lead more equitable lives of meaning and purpose. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. The creative process is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Mall with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Evelyn Mall. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.